This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hi, I'm Sam Adams, a senior editor at Slate, and today on the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club, we're talking about Francis Ford Coppola's 1972 movie, The Conversation. In 1972, Francis Ford Coppola was on top of the world. The massive success of The Godfather had turned him from a cult director into a sure thing, and Paramount was eager for him to start work on a sequel. But Coppola decided he was going to use his newfound clout to make the kind of personal movie he'd always wanted to make, and turned instead to the story of Harry Call a reclusive surveillance expert played by Gene Hackman, whose attempts to unravel the mysteries of a single covertly recorded conversation between a man and a woman leads him down a path of obsession and madness. Hackman's character, or a thinly veiled version of him, also turns up in the 1998 thriller Enemy of the State, in which Will Smith plays an innocent man who becomes the target of a surveillance-happy rogue faction within the U.S. government. Joining me to talk about both movies is Isaac Butler. Isaac Butler writes about movies in theater for Slate, and is currently at work on an oral history of Angels in America. He is also a theater director whose shows include Mike Daisy's The Trump Card. But for our purposes, what's most important is that he is the writer and director of Real Enemies, a mixed-media performance piece that delves into the history of conspiracy theories in America, mashing up real and fictional collusions with wild theories and avant-garde big band music. Isaac, welcome to the club. Thanks, Sam. So when I wanted to start by talking to you, I know that when you were working on Real Enemies, you spent a long time researching all sorts of conspiratorial texts. And that includes, I think, most, if not all of the movies in this series, but also you quote the sort of classic uh, Richard Hofstadter paranoid style essay, and you go back to to Emerson yep. and, of course, quote actual sort of intel from the Pentagon Papers and stuff like that. So. Because the conversation is a movie for me so much about the conspiratorial mindset. It's just about what it does when this professional surveillance expert becomes convinced that he is himself being watched and he knows how much information you can find out about people. And it it just kind of drives him crazy by the end of the film. So I'm wondering what it was like for you to immerse yourself in that kind of stuff for a prolonged period of time. This is what I will say. Actually, the part that we did about doomsday cults was actually the hardest because those stories are universally horrible. You know, they're often well-meaning true believers who then become convinced of some kind of conspiracy against them and wind up killing people or themselves or whatever. I am a reasonably paranoid person to begin with. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why this material appealed to me so much. And I think everyone believes that they have the appropriate level of paranoia. And, you know, someone who has less paranoia is naive and someone who has more paranoia is a whack job, right? That's what everyone thinks. But I truly believe that I have a reasonable (laughs) level of paranoia. But I will say that in researching, you know, decades of government wrongdoing that we actually do know about, the stuff that came out under Watergate and the Church Commission, especially, uh, or Iran-Contra, once we swing around to Trump being elected, which happened after we did our show, I definitely felt more on the paranoiac edge of my friends of like, oh, well, should I be communicating with everyone through Signal? Should I actually just use burner phones? You know, and I'm not like some major political dissident, but I definitely found myself enmeshed in that kind of paranoia about being surveilled. And I still feel it. You know, I was just in the UK doing research for the book and on the flight back, I was like, oh, are they going to force me to surrender my phone? And 
copy it and do all that stuff that I've been reading, which of course they didn't. I was in customs for 35 seconds. But, you know, I, I definitely have those flashes, those kind of nightmaric flashes that call uh, Gene Hackman's character has in that film. It's where suddenly your pulse is racing and you're thinking about reformatting your hard drive for no like actual real reason. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about this movie is and this happens a lot with movies and it's something that as a cultural critic, I think you kind of take in stride you know, that movies sometimes just come out when they're meant to come out through mm -hmm. right? all the various accidents and collisions of circumstances that result in movies, which are these enormous, even the small ones are these very enormous enterprises and products of money and chance and artistic inspiration and all and production circumstances and everything else. This is a movie that Francis Ford Coppola started. It's an original screenplay. He started working on in the mid 60s, like 66, 67 I think really before he'd made almost anything was certainly before he started making his, his own movies, he might've made, you know, dementia 13 for, for Corman at that point, but very much just kind of getting into things and then couldn't crack the script. He, he described his process. A lot of the time he gets three quarters of the way through the script. He thinks it's garbage. He throws it aside and then comes back to it two, three, five, ten 10 years later and, and finishes it. And in addition, this was a movie that had maybe some script issues, but I, I think it was also just a movie about a very paranoid, withdrawn, internalized, kind of creepy, unlikable protagonist. And right. I think that was a tough sell. And uh, even with Gene Hackman attached, who by the time they were making this movie was a very big star, thanks to the French Connection, Coppola had to essentially put Paramount, the studio that made it, over a barrel. This this movie fell in between The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, and Coppola made a deal with Paramount, who very much wanted him to do a sequel to The Godfather. One of the pillars of that deal was that he would get to make the conversation. I think there was also a Rolls-Royce limo involved, and he had to be able to call the movie Part Two, which Paramount, for some reason, didn't want to do. But the, for our purposes, the, the most important part of that is that he got to make the conversation. And so this movie that he had been working on for seven or eight years by the time it came out happened to be released right in the thick of the kind of climax of the Watergate investigation and right. this mass awareness of surveillance and conspiracy and paranoia is all kind of coming to a head. And it's interesting to look back on it now because it is by Coppola's own token, a very sort of, he calls it an art film, and it's very sort of self-consciously indebted to Michelangelo Antonioni's blow up, among other movies. And it was actually quite a success, um, maybe thanks to The Godfather and Hackman. I think it cost about one million and made over four just in the US, which is quite a lot in 1974 dollars, and, and probably more than the conversation would make if you put it out now. <laughs> You've said a lot that's really fascinating, but one of the things that's fascinating if you've never seen the conversation and you go to see it is how small the film is. There aren't that many actors in it. It's a series of largely very lengthy set pieces in very few locations. And, you know, then revisiting those thoughts over and over and over again. It is not the stuff of, you know, a blockbuster movie. It's a, it's in some ways a very small, very intimate film with the protagonist who hates intimacy, right? Which is one of its interesting contrasts. And you can see why Coppola may have struggled for a while to finish the screenplay because one of the struggles dramatically that the film has is how do we reveal the internality of a character who does not want to be known? 
You know, how do you create the circumstances where you can know things about Harry Call when he does not want you to know anything about him? And so you have suddenly he's a Catholic, a devout Catholic who makes a confession. So you can hear like a fragment of his story. And then there's someone else who's investigated him and will reveal his story to a crowd. So you can hear a little bit bit about him there and he has this uh, dream sequence so that he can actually speak what he is feeling because there's no other way that that character would do that unless he was unconscious which I think is really fascinating yeah and one of the things that's really interesting about this movie too I think if you talk about kind of the major forces in this movie you obviously have to talk about Coppola and you talk about Hackman but you also very much have to talk about a man named Walter Murch yeah who um, I think some listeners who know a lot about film that will be a very recognizable name to them and, and probably not to a lot of others but he is um, an editor and also on this movie became the first person to be credited for sound design and that was for kind of largely like technical union reasons like the sound union wouldn't let him use a title with the word editor in it but um merch played an enormous role in the sound design of this movie which it's a movie about sound among other things, and also in the editing and the structure of it. One of the ways that the production of the movie worked out is because Coppola was also prepping Godfather 2 and was moving on to that, Merch was kind of left to his own devices in the editing room. There's actually a story that he tells where the opening shot of the movie, which is this long single shot zoom in from a tower atop uh, Union Square in San Francisco. And it lasts about two minutes. It's sort of like a slightly more mainstream version of Michael Snow's avant-garde landmark wavelength. But Merch recalls kind of getting a call in the editing room from Coppola and Coppola saying, okay, Walter, how long are the titles on this movie? And of course, they they didn't have the titles yet because they hadn't shot the shot that they were to go over. So Merch then had to go kind of figure out the credits and okay, so-and-so gets five seconds, so-and-so gets three, kind of do the math and say, you know, whatever it was, two and a half or four minutes. And then Coppola timed that opening shot with what was a kind of bleeding edge technology of the time, this computerized zoom to precisely that length so that the opening credits would all run over this single shot. And it's interesting watching it now because I'm going to say sort of a little bit about the plot of the movie, although in, in general, these podcasts, I say this every time just to remind people are, are more designed to be listened to after you've watched the film and in, in that yeah. we're not going to be especially shy about spoilers and, and things like that. So fair warning. So this opening shot is really challenging in the sense that it's at first kind of very dull, you know, and we're just looking at this kind of random square in, I, if you know San Francisco, maybe you recognize it, but it's not identified for us. The camera's kind of roving all over the place. We don't know who or what to look at. There's, you know, people kind of crossing back and forth, walking around, talking to each other. I want to go over to my place and start, you know, getting it on because I'm just tired of so, you know. I was terrible. Yeah. Did you ever uh, take ballet? We can't. Did you have a quarter for them? And you see the actor that you know is the lead actor walk through the shot. But the camera seems completely uninterested that he's in it. And the other thing is you have no idea whose point of view you're in at that beginning. It's it's not only, you know, it's sort of filled with all these pedestrian details, but it's also kind of unsettling. You're like, who am I right. in this shot? Right. Yeah. And it's a movie you've kind of very much about looking that is 
metaphorically, although not literally, very much limited to Harry Call's, um, Gene Hackman's character, his point of view in that, you know, we see what we see, we know what he knows. There is this one very brief dream sequence. But I guess what I was getting into before bringing up Merch is that he had a huge role in structuring the movie. If you kind of read up on him or listen to, um, there's a great Blu-ray, I think, the and it's on the iTunes extras as well, of this movie where Coppola has a full-length commentary and Merch has a commentary track too. And I'll just talk about this movie was massively restructured in editing what was now a brief dream sequence in the movie was actually part of the ending of the movie. And it was this exterior scene where Coppola was kind of shooting with fog machines and there was some static from people in the area about getting the oil from fog machines on their cars and the press was starting to show up. And Coppola just got fed up with it and called cut and wrapped the film four days early without having shot the original ending. And then it was kind of left up to merch to move things around and make all sorts of implications that weren't there. The scene in the confessional that you mentioned, the dialogue in there was totally re-recorded in order to kind of drop plot points earlier. So it's a, a really fascinating study, among other things, in the power of editing. And, and it's kind of fitting because this is a movie like Blow Up, which we talk about in another episode in the series, is really consumed with process. That opening scene, we later learn we're watching this kind of complex arrangement of various directional microphones training on this couple played by Frederick Forrest and Cindy Williams who are walking around this square and it's this problem of how to capture two people talking in the middle of the crowd and there's this you know elaborate sequence where we see Hackman syncing up his three reel to reel tape recorders and you know acting as a sound mixer and varying the levels on each machine and eventually plugging in some sort of inexplicable gadget to I think it's a compressor. Yeah. I think he's doing frequency compression to yeah. try to zero out some of the sound. Yeah, it's it's interesting though merch says that's one of the places where the movie really bends the truth because it's this thing that he says directors always ask you to do where you have a shot and there's too much background is or music in it and the director say well can't you just take that noise out. Right. And of course then and now in 2000 when he was recording the commentary there's no way to do that. You can't just remove one level of sound but they gave Harry Call this kind of magical gift. Well, he's the best in the biz. Yes. I mean, he's actually a celebrity in his world, which is a really another really fascinating aspect to him is, you know, you find out over the course of the movie that he's this living legend that's almost being sort of stalked by his competition because they have this sort of yearning to be him or to work with him because he's that brilliant. We've talked about the character of Harry Call a little bit and about Hackman's performance, but I'll ask you, Isaac, since, I mean, among other things, you work in theater. What do you make of Hackman just as an actor in this film? Well, I mean, I love Gene Hackman, and I have never seen Gene Hackman give a performance that I didn't think was totally brilliant, even in movies that maybe don't deserve him. But, you know, one of the fascinating things about the conversation is, at least at the beginning of the film, there is no effort made to make Call likable. Hackman doesn't care if you like him. Coppola clearly doesn't care if you like him. It is only once he begins caring 
about the people he may be spying on and caring about the implications of his work that we begin to sort of see the cracks in the facade that make us really root for him or at least root for him to figure out what's going on. He's hidden behind the sort of mustache and these glasses, which are kind of iconic and I know will come up later in our discussion of enemy of the state, (laughs) but he's, you know, abusive to his employees. What I think is really fascinating about the character of call is that it's this thing you mentioned earlier, which is that he knows because he is himself a conspirator, right? He's a surveillance guy. I mean, it's sort of a private dick movie, but he knows what you can find out about someone through surveillance because he is a genius at it. And that knowledge has destroyed him before the movie starts. He's a completely like hollowed out person at the beginning of the movie. He has no friends. He refuses to tell anyone anything about himself. He has a kept woman in an apartment who waits for a man. That's the euphemism they keep using. You know, she waits for him in the apartment and he pays her rent and stuff like that. He's played by Terry Garr, by the way. And the second she asks anything about him, he storms out because he doesn't like her asking questions. I mean, as soon as one of his coworkers tries to know anything about the work they're actually doing and how it's done, he alienates that coworker so much, who's played by the late, great John Cazale, that he quits and goes to work for the competition. So, you know, there's this thing where Hall and, and Hackman really does this. He's this really contained bundle of paranoia that being a conspirator has turned him into a paranoiac. And so the crazy thing is by the end of the film, when he has been conspired against his paranoia at the end of the film is very similar to his paranoia at the beginning of the film. I mean, it's metastasized, but it's a similar dynamic, which is actually something that Hofstadter talks about, which is that there is an interplay between conspiracists, which is to say people who analyze and prove conspiracies or, you know, conspiracy theorists and the conspirators, they are often imitating each other. And there's a dynamic that exists between the two of them, which is actually what our whole show is about. There's this dynamic of imitation and escalation and things like that. And so there's a way in which call actually comes full circle in the film, which is, and maybe this is too much of a spoiler, but which is mirrored in the film's final shot. And the film in many ways to me is a journey from its opening shot to its final shot. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, that, that opening shot is shot kind of classically on this very long lens um, from what we later find out as the point of view of this long-range directional shotgun microphone. But Coppola, he decided he, he really wanted to make a movie about surveillance that had the look and feel of surveillance, but he didn't want to do what even by 74 was he felt like this kind of cliched long lens approach. So what he decided to do is work with a lot of static camera so that the characters, as you mentioned with Hackman in that opening shot, kind of come in and out of frame, sometimes wander on and off mic. And the last shot has this slow pan to the left and then it pans to the right and then it pulls back. And that's deliberately designed to mimic like an automated security camera, that pattern of movement yeah, that you would find. Right. But also building off of that, the first time you see that shot, you're like, this panning is so bizarre. Why would you pan away from him and pan back? And then there's a moment where it clicks and you realize it is that convenience store CCTV camera that that's the pov we have but it's also to me important that that opening shot is from the pov of someone who works for call right it is calls pov essentially it's his team's pov it's their microphone and you have no idea whose pov that last shot is from it's not calls he doesn't know that camera is there he's looking for it so by the end of it 
he is the surveiller at the beginning and by the end he's the victim of surveillance driven basically insane by the knowledge that it's there but that he can't find it and one thing that the movie does really well i mean again i mean it's not a sort of literal pov movie like you're actually physically seeing through the lens what a character is seeing but there are several moments and this may even be just an unintentional byproduct of the static framing where characters kind of move in and out of, of view but you do have the effect sometimes of you think you're getting Harry's point of view and then he will walk into the shot. Those are amazing. Yeah, it's so it's so unsettling. Oh, uh, the hotel room you're, is the big one that I noticed where, you know, the door. I mean, I would have to rewatch it to know shot for shot what's going on. But it really sets you up to think that it is from his POV. And then he just walks into the shot and it's, you're, it's just so unsettling. I mean, it's a deeply unsettling film. Call is often filmed kind of obscured by windows or by fog or, you know, by various things in ways that I feel like they pull from on the Americans a lot with shooting Philip, you know, or his face is in shadow or whatever. You know, there's this real sense that both you and call are not actually seeing what's really going on. And we know eventually call really isn't well hearing what's really going on, but there's this sense that your perception is wrong and that every moment that you are watching could be immediately disrupted with something else that you're not in the POV or think you're in or whatever that, that is deeply, deeply unsettling and creates a sort of similar feeling of paranoia in the viewer to what you are witnessing from call. Yeah. And it, I mean, the movie is really in love with both in, in script and story terms, but also in visual terms, very much in love with layers of transparency or semi-transparency. There's a lot of hanging sheets of plastic and frosted glass. And Gene Hackman wears what kind of seems a little bit like a like a flasher's kind of semi-transparent gray plastic raincoat. Um, even I mean, you never see a drop of rain in the film, I don't no. think, but he's just always wearing it. And it's kind of like he's just walking around with this permanent scrim. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And he's always locking, you know, there's always a locked door. There's always something that you can't access in the film. There's always some nugget of truth, some reality that you want or that call wants that is inaccessible. It's interesting too that I went and read um I think it's the second not Roger Ebert's original review, but his later kind of great movies essay on the film, but starts off with, I think, you know, a pretty long, like two or three paragraphs about Harry Call is bad at his job um, and how they, they kind of call him the best bugger on the West Coast. But his landlady steals his mail and, and his mistress or his kept woman, he comes in and she says, oh, I saw you lurking in the hallway for an hour just before this. And I think a lo- some of that is just kind of bad plotting or sort of in, insufficient screenwriting. I don't I don't think we're meant to assume that. I think we're Harry is very good at his job. But it does show you that there are kind of limits to this. Probably the first humanizing moment in the film maybe is when Harry goes home to his apartment and it's his birthday. And he, he uh, opens his door with his three locks and turns off his alarm and there's a bottle of wine sitting on his doorstep, but inside the door. And so he's, you know, who sent this to him? How did they know it was his birthday? How did it get inside his apartment? And it turns out that his landlady has been kind of going through his mail in this sort of, you know, classic like 1940s cartoon strip manner and has seen this birthday card, which has a kind of handwritten 44 on it to let you know how old he is. And then he brings the wine to Terry Gar later and he says, oh, somebody gave that to me for my birthday. And she says, how old are you? And he says, 42. And he shoots her this look like, is she going to buy this? And there's something so poignant and and pathetic to me about this being a character who lies about his age, 
but just in the tiniest, most insignificant way. Like he knows that if he goes down to 39, nobody's going to buy it. So right. he just shaves a couple of years <laughs> off as if anybody cares if he's 42 or 44. Right. You mentioned sort of how interior and, and withdrawn the performances. And, and it's interesting. I mean, Coppola says that it was a very difficult performance for Hackman to give just on a, on a personal level. He was kind of a very gregarious, outgoing guy. I mean, he's just a movie star on the rise at that point. I think very much kind of enjoying all, all the fruits of his fame and, and success. And then to kind of have to play a person like this, I think was pretty difficult for him and put him in, in, in among other things, just kind of in a pretty sour mood on the set. I mean, he, he's, I think said in a number of places that it's, either his favorite of his own performances or certainly one of them, depending on the interview. But, right. But it's not the warm, fuzzy, avuncular Gene Hackman we sort of came to know. Or even the evil avuncular Gene Hackman of uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, there's none of that outgoingness. I mean, if you think about like the French connection, his opening scene, you were picking your toes in Poughkeepsie. You know, that scene is this like bravura macho anti-hero explosion. You know, he just bursts into that bar he's beating people up he's interrogating people with that whole thing and this this is a i'm making a shrinking motion with my hands right here you know it's so tense and pressurized i mean it's deeply discomforting to just watch hackman lurking around that screen the character who sort of wishes he could turn invisible and doesn't want to be known because being known puts you at great risk and we see that in the amazing, I mean, it sort of feels like the Cassavetes film Faces, that amazing party in Harry's warehouse office where Moran, his nemesis slash competitor slash, I don't know how you would, you know, describe him, has his Salieri. His Salieri. His Salieri. Yeah, yeah, totally. His Salieri. That's good. Yeah. So Moran, his Salieri, has managed to place a microphone on call in the shape of a pen. And when he replays what turns out to be this like, devastatingly intimate moment of heartbreak that call is confessing to a woman when he ends up playing it you know call is so mortified by it that he destroys the pen he kicks everyone out he almost has a mental breakdown i mean he is someone who can't be known because being known puts you at risk harry that's you and me when we were out there what oh shit because of the timing, I think people have referred to Hackman's character as being Nixonian, but I think the better reading that I've I've seen is the Alan Garfield character is kind of the more Nixonian one. He's the real kind of envious, no respect. You know, I'm the best bugger on the East Coast, maybe, right. maybe the second best in the world, maybe better than you, but I still can't figure out how you did it. And this real kind of, he just keeps needling Harry because there's this one kind of legendary bit of bugging that he did that no one else has been able to figure out. And in fact, because no one could figure out, people didn't really believe that it was a surveillance job and in fact believed that the person being surveilled had actually kind of talked to the authorities and then right. he and his family end up getting murdered. And this is this is the sort of dark secret in his past that Harry Call has never quite managed to live down. Right. Call has two great 
acts of genius as a as a bugger, right? His great Mozart works are, are this one that, that you just described, Sam, where a family, including a child, is murdered as a result of his work. So his greatest work is his greatest trauma. But we actually also learn, and what's a great piece of foreshadowing, is that this tape that he has made in the film that we have watched of this couple in this anonymous square in San Francisco is the greatest, most impressive thing he's ever done. They say that. They say, this is your best work ever. And so we know that the stakes are going to get even higher and he's going to be destroyed by it. And it's it's wonderful how the nature of that recording and the nature of this titular conversation, which is replayed dozens and dozens of times in the film, and we kind of scrutinize and hear new layers of and work through levels of what sounds like digital distortion, actually not even analog, which is another way this movie kind of seems ahead of its time. We peel through all these layers of distortion. And as we're doing that, Harry Call is in a way kind of falling in love with Cindy Williams' character mm-hmm. to the extent that he decides he kind of has to be her white knight. And this pivotal line, he'd kill us if he got the chance. He then decides that he has to kind of save her from this or that he won't be able to save her from that. And that's what the the dream sequence in the movie is about. That's the only time where he actually speaks to her. And it's not actually real, but he says he'd kill you if he got the chance. And that's the closest he can come to warning her. Can I say my actual favorite moment of the many, many times that this conversation is replayed is when Call is with the mysterious woman in his warehouse after everyone has left the party. And he's about to have sex with her and he's listening to the conversation because, you know, before I have sex, I listen to surveillance tapes, too. (laughs) He's listening to this tape that he's made and he's lying on the sort of makeshift cot looking. He actually looks dead. I mean, he's not moving. He's so distraught. And in the conversation that's playing, they're talking about a homeless man lying on a bench. And he's not hurting anyone. And, you know, I think about. Who was he that he ended up in this place? They're having this whole conversation about him. But the camera is looking at Hackman. And I'm pretty sure posture-wise, they're not dissimilar, those two shots. And so every time they replay the conversation, there is some line that has a new meaning or is a commentary on what is happening or you know is recontextualized in a different way. And that particular one, I think, is actually kind of amazing because that is the moment where I think his relationship to that woman transforms because he imagines in that moment in some way, I feel like that he is being taken care of by her. And so now he has to save her so he can take care of her. Well, this character of Harry Call became somewhat iconic, I think. I mean, this is never kind of a huge movie. It's obviously overshadowed in Coppola's career by both of the Godfathers literally as well as figuratively. And it got picked up later in a 1998 thriller by Tony Scott called Enemy of the State. Uh, It's sort of an unofficial sequel, I think, among other things, because they probably didn't feel like paying Paramount for the rights. Um, Gene Hackman's character has a different name. He's not literally Harry Call, but there's a moment where his surveillance expert, who turns up fully an hour into what is kind of at root a Will Smith surveillance thriller, there's a shot of Hackman's character as a young man that is exactly a still from the conversation with the same glasses and, and mustache that you mentioned before. This movie, it's kind of every bit the sort of slick ensemble, late 90s, Jerry Bruckheimer, Tony Scott thriller in many ways, which I, I think you are particularly keen to talk about. But it also functions as a kind of summing up of... A lot of the movies that we're talking about in this series, there are 
overt references to certainly the conversation with this character being carried over. They replicate the Union Square scene from the beginning of the conversation um, with a lot more editing, of course, because it's a Tony Scott movie. And there's a shot of the antagonist of the movie, who's this uh, sort of NSA spook played by John Voight. There's a shot of him in a bathrobe getting a glass of milk out of the refrigerator. That's a direct quote from the Manchurian Candidate, which is kind of prophetic because then John Voight actually ended up playing that character in the Manchurian Candidate remake by Jonathan Demme in 2004. So it's interesting that it really draws on a lot of the same subject matter as the earlier movies, but then in a much slicker, more appealing, big budget action movie kind of package. And one of the heavies is wearing uh, Call's plastic raincoat in one scene. There's a bunch of actually little teeny visual references to the conversation all over that. Uh, Enemy of the State is one of the most 90s movies that ever 90'd <laughs> because it's one of those Bruckheimer films so it has a huge cast of people with like three lines. In fact, the number of actors mentioned in the title credits is probably more people than appear in the entirety of the conversation, you know, and every nineties actor is in it. I mean, the, the NSA conspirators are Jack Black, Seth Green, Scott Kahn, Jake Busey, the great Lauren Dean, uh, Jamie Kennedy, yeah, Jamie Kennedy. Yeah. Jason Lee is in it for two minutes. Gabriel Byrne has four lines in it. Yeah. Um, but it's like this compendium of like, if you were a hot, young white actor in your 20s in Hollywood in the late 90s, you were certainly in a Jerry Bruckheimer movie and you were probably an enemy of the state. Right. There are a few of you were in Con Air. The character actors amongst you were in Con Air and the rest of you were an enemy of the state. Yeah. So if you think you weren't an enemy of the state, check your IMDb page. Yeah. It's a good one for uh, playing the six degrees of Kevin Bacon game. <laughs> Because, you know, there's just so many people in it. You could just cross-reference them. All roads lead through Enemy of the State. So, tell me, I think this was your first time with the film. Am I Second. I saw it at the Uptown Theater in Washington, D.C. on its opening weekend, in, in fact. Okay. And, yeah, and it was actually one of the very first movies I reviewed. I went back and looked at the review I wrote of it when I was, I think, 24, which fortunately is not on the internet at the moment. But it's not a entirely humiliating piece of writing so that that's always a relief that's good so based on our, our conversations it seems like you got a lot out of this most well, recent viewing i think what's interesting for maybe our purposes about enemy of the state is that it's a pre-9-11 pre-patriot act film pre-edward snowden obviously pre-prism and upstream and all of those programs film about the surveillance state so the surveillance state is basically the enemy in, in the movie. But because it's 1998, they have to actually still do a lot of explaining about what the surveillance state is and how it works and maybe why it's bad. Regina King, who plays Will Smith's long suffering wife, they kind of shoehorn in that she's also an ACLU lawyer so that she can complain about violations of the Fourth Amendment and so that she and Will Smith can kind of have these debates about whether surveillance is good or bad. And he eventually comes around to the opinion that. It's bad because he becomes a victim of it. Yeah, Will Smith's character, who's a labor lawyer, kind of takes the position like, if I haven't done anything wrong, I have nothing to hide. You because, know? yeah. And also he uses surveillance to try to essentially blackmail his opponents in trials to settling or to doing the right thing. Yeah, he's going up against kind of union-connected mob boss played by Tom Sizemore who wants to prevent his very nice unionizing clients from having a straight up or down vote on whether or not to form a union. Right. So he uses this surveillance tape of Sizemore cavorting with, with felons in order to, to blackmail him into that. And Right. 
So, so I'm just saying, you know, in terms of the surveillance state, like they have to do a lot of explanation about how it works. Some of it seems far fetched. I was reading some reviews of the time where they were like, you know, oddly, every phone in this can be tapped. But now we take for granted that all of our phones are tapped. There's a part where Gene Hackman says, if you say the following words into your phone, the NSA will flag that call and record it, which at the time I'm sure was like, really? But if you watch The Good Wife, The Good Wife has an extended plot line that's treated as a farce about the NSA doing that. So to me, what's interesting is it's this kind of bridge, right? Because by the time we get to 24 or the Bourne movies, which I I know you guys are, are talking about here on this podcast, by the time we get to those movies, this whole thing is taken for granted. It does not need to be explained. Joan Allen can just walk into a room, right, and be like, get me eyes on Bourne. What's going on with this? Have we tapped all the phones? Good. Have we assassinated these people? Great. Let's go. Let's boogie, right? Whereas an enemy of the state, they have to spend like an hour laying the groundwork of how this whole surveillance state even works and to show you kind of step by step how it works coming in my signal the national security agency conducts worldwide surveillance fax phones satellite communication the only ones in the country including the military could possibly have anything like this why are they after me i don't know and i don't want to know here they come i thought these sat dishes would scramble their signal control this is their what repeat coordinates 105 chambers avenue you're transmitting they still have a signal on you your collar, your belt, your zipper. Get rid of your clothes, all of them. And then what am I supposed to do? Nothing. You live another day, I'll be very impressed. Two targets, rooftop, north side. Right. And it's interesting because it's, I think, considered kind of fantastic at the time. And there are certainly things in it that are, are not true. There's a bit where they have security camera footage of Will Smith's character buying lingerie for his wife because you still need to get some women in underwear into your movie, even if it's largely about kind of men in overcoats running away from other men in overcoats. And they ask Jack Black's character to take the shot and kind of rotate it 75 degrees in the computer and then enhance and to kind of get into an area where the camera couldn't see and stuff like that is kind of ridiculous but there is stuff in it and those keywords that you mentioned it's i think it's if you say bomb or president or allah right and it's interesting to look back and realize that a lot of the stuff it's so hard to remember what things were like before 9-11 now and this is kind of a window into that very kind of slicked up techno glossed version of that but to see that a lot of the, the concerns kind of predate, you know, what we think of as kind of our, you know, modern reality. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one thing Mark said on the Manchurian Candidate podcast, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, there is a way in which these conspiracy theory movies have this kind of prophetic fever dream quality of what's about to happen, right? That in that the Manchurian Candidate and actually Frankenheimer's other film, uh, Seven Days in May, happened right before the JFK assassination or the conversation is written in the late sixties. By the time it comes out, you know, we're in the midst of Watergate An enemy of the state. I think actually, although it's not a good by any measure, a good movie, the way those other movies are good movies. Enemy of the state has a similar kind of paranoid fever dream that turns out to be prophetic quality to it, which I think is really fascinating. It is because of that in a way, those other movies are not quite dated feeling at the same time. There's a weird way in which you're like, well, wouldn't Will Smith's character know that the government is doing all? I mean, nowadays, you, do you know what I mean? There's a, right. there's a weird dated quality to it, even though the conversations that it's talking about, it's actually a little ahead of the curve on. It now just feels so optimistically naive that we would sit around having problems with this stuff. Well, and there's this whole sequence late in the film where Will Smith's character has been 
bugged in all these different ways. They kind of do this elaborate ruse where they pretend that these teenagers have come into his house and trashed all his stuff, as teenagers do, thrown all his clothes into the tub with bleach, except for one suit, which he is then forced to wear. And then this suit and his pair of shoes have been outfitted with all those bugs. And there's a bug in his pants and there's a bug in his shoes and and his pen, which, of course, then requires Will Smith to strip down to his underwear as well, because fair's fair. But the mechanics of that are so interesting to look back at now, because now you don't need anything. I mean, sure, they can track your phone or your credit card. But even without that, I mean, there's, you know, facial recognition and network cameras and CCTV and, and things like that. So the idea that someone has to physically plant something on you in order to be able to track you, I think, has Unfortunately, that's one of the dated elements of the movie as well. Yeah. And, I mean, once Hackman's character appears, whose name is Brill, I believe, once Brill appears, you know, he says this thing about, like, there's a GPS in your device and it's tracking you. Get rid of it. I was like, we all have that. We are all carrying around with us a black rectangle that can track our every move and whose microphone can be switched on to record what we are saying at any time, provided that someone has the right authorities to authorize them doing that. And we all now know this because it's been reported on very, very, very extensively. So, yeah, I agree. There's that sort of stuff where it's like, well, yeah, there's a way in which your response now, we become so habituated to it. And I don't think the surveillance state is good, to be totally clear. But we become so habituated to it that when Gene Hackman's like, there's a GPS in your phone, you know, you're like, yeah, 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 that's how I knew how to walk here. <laughs> yeah, I think we can probably say for the podcast, the, the official position of this podcast is that the surveillance state is bad. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> why not? But looking back on this, there is this really introductory quality of things that we now take for granted. And this movie has been accused along with others. There was a, an article in The Guardian, I think, last year that accused this movie and movies like it of kind of habituating us to the surveillance state. I think I would argue that the surveillance state has probably done more to habituate us to the surveillance state than Jerry Bruckheimer, Tony Scott thrillers. Uh, I would agree with that. I mean, I think one of the things that's habituated us to the surveillance state is that it uses the same tools that we get so much pleasure out of. Right. It uses the camera on our computer or the GPS in our phone or our browser history or, you know, whatever it is that we are getting so much pleasure out of the, these things that we are doing and they become so useful to us that we don't really want to give it up. I mean, like I said, you know, there was a part of me the night after election night that was like, should I get a burner phone? And then right. I was like, well, what would be the point in getting a burner phone? I, I have a terrible sense of direction. How would I ever find where I need to go? Well, and we've, we've become accustomed to this trade-off where we get, you know, the most powerful search tool in the history of humankind. And the price of being able to use that for free is that Google collects all our data. Right. In and Soviet Russia, browser searches you. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. And so... Call in the conversation has a very specific reaction to this, right? Which is that he just hollows out his life. Right. Except for the occasional trip to confession. It's been, what, three months since his last confession or something like that? Yes. He says, and in Enemy of the State, it's like, well, we're going to fight the surveillance state or the surveillance state's going to fight us. And we're eventually going to use its own tricks against us the way the Viet Cong did, which is like the very strange <laughs> monologue at the end, which is like the way to defeat the surveillance state is to be like the Viet Cong. But now our actual attitude towards it is like, oh, well, I'm going to check Twitter again to learn about. How whatever that unpronounceable word is that Trump tweeted out. I think BuzzFeed has actually reported on this in the last few years. They went in and put in a FOIA request for emails within the NSA about the movie Enemy of the State. And it's really interesting. The NSA was not a fan 
of the movie. Yeah. Surprisingly enough, all these Jerry Bruckheimer movies have some degree of government cooperation because they are largely like kind of, you know, pornography for the military industrial complex. I mean, Michael Bay can get an aircraft carrier anytime he wants it because his movies are giant ads for how sweet tanks look when they blow stuff up. And actually, you can see a little bit of that. There's like a creaky bit in Enemy of the State where they really want to underline that John Voight's character, who is the bad guy, is not a career NSA officer. He's a political appointee and he's gone rogue. Right. And they really want to underline all that, that this cell that he is running within the NSA is not really representative of the NSA at large. In fact, when the uh, head of the NSA, played by Bulldog from Frasier, uh, <laughs> finds out about this operation that's going on, he's disgusted by it, and he wants to throw whoever did it in prison. He is shocked. Shocked. Sh- yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, but that's then that's a good reference for this, because the idea that, you know, well, we built this whole mechanism, but the idea that anyone would abuse it is shocking to us is, of course, laughable. One of the amazing emails from the, this BuzzFeed cache that they published is there's one email from this redacted NSA employee complaining about, you know, what if they can see me in this shot? I didn't give my permission for my image to be used in this movie. Are they going to pay me for it? And it's like, dude, you work for the NSA and you're, you're complaining about your privacy being violated. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, goes back to this idea of, you know, the people who fear the most from their privacy being violated are the people who are professionally violating people's privacy, which enemy of the state gets at again, the same way the conversation does, which is that Brill's character, Hackman's character, when he shows up is astoundingly paranoid. And in fact, he's recreated Harry calls workstation in a warehouse, but it has no lines of cable that go in and out. There's nothing that can be eavesdropped on the walls or whatever proof called the jar, right? So he lives in this totally encased universe. I think it's actually like a Faraday cage or something. It's a Faraday cage. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. That's right. And then the way they get back at John Voight's character and get him to play ball so that they can then defeat him is to make him as paranoid as Will Smith was, is to use his own paranoia against him. And it's only when he's driven to that that he becomes desperate. They show on his television footage that's being recorded in his house. You know, they do all these sorts of tricks to let him know that they're on to him so that he will sort of overstep his bounds and he'll screw up, yeah, which so, he does. Yeah, of course. Well, good guys have to win. Yeah. One of the reactions to the movie was from Michael Hayden in 2001, who was then the director of the NSA, who told CNN that he made the judgment, this is a quote, I made the judgment that we couldn't survive with the popular impression of this agency being formed by the last Will Smith movie. But one of the things that's happened since 9-11, and this is partly because of the political climate and partly you know, for a whole host of reasons within the movie and TV industries, is that... You know, this technology has become so sophisticated and so similar to the technology that we use in our everyday lives that it just seems really cool now. So it's like, you know, every sequence is hypercut in the movies and it kind of looks like the forensic science montages on CSI or something like that. So the way that they've gotten around our distrust is A, we just had to accept it because what else are we going to do? But also this stuff is kind of cool. Yeah, Yeah. it's very sexy. And actually, Janet Maslin in her Times review of the film, which I looked up, talks about how all the sex in the movie is actually the shots of technology working. It's where sort of all the sex in the movie is gone is into that world. And I I do think that there's a way that Enemy of the State is absolutely hugely influential in terms of how this stuff is shot. 
obviously it's not the first movie to use what again my wife calls the deedly d noise whenever a computer is doing anything because computers are not actually sonically very interesting so it has to go um but you know those the shot of the satellite going over the globe the shots of them cutting to and from the computers is like i don't know where we would get 24's visual vocabulary without enemy of the state or csis it is telling that a lot of its visual impact is on television but i do also think those born movies owe something they don't have the same kind of canted angles that tony scott's such a big fan of but there is something about those dark conspiracy rooms that joan allen and chris cooper in them you know get me eyes on this get me eyes on that look an awful lot like they do in enemy of the state right and there is i think i've I've quoted this in one of the other podcasts here but it's kind of a touchstone for me in this series there's a Errol Morris talking about the Manchurian Candidate said one of the things that's comforting about conspiracy thrillers is for all the dark visions of the world that they conjure up, they also offer this kind of reassurance that there actually is someone in control. Yes, absolutely. And so how I view them, and maybe this is because I'm a I'm a writer, right, is that conspiracy theories are acts of narrative creation. And like every other way of creating narrative you see a chain of things and you create causality between them and that's how you get a story right that's how we create stories as human beings we have these chains of causality a causes b to happen causes c to happen etc unless you're david lynch but that these things you know that there's this kind of chain of causality and that often a conspiracy theory is that narrative function gone haywire when it's wrong when conspiracy theories are right it's a different story but when a conspiracy theory is wrong it is that narrative function kind of gone haywire and often we create stories to explain the unexplainable to ourselves to explain the things that we cannot Except we can't accept this reality. So we create a story that gives us a different one. And very often that's what a conspiracy theory is. What we see in the conversation is Call is actually trying to search for how these different dots connect. And he initially connects them wrong. Uh, and that's sort of what the story is. He connects them incorrectly and then he figures it out. And an enemy of the state actually, like in the Manchurian Candidate, the audience knows from the beginning what's going on. And we are waiting for Will Smith's character to connect the dots accurately and figure it out so that he can save himself. Isaac. Sam. Thank you very much for doing this. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been the Conspiracy Thrillers Movie Club on The Conversation and Enemy of the State. You can rent the films on Amazon and iTunes. If you want to join the conversation, check out our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash conspiracy thrillers. Read more about the movies and listen to our previous episodes on The Manchurian Candidate and All the President's Men at slate.com slash thrillers. Our next episode in two weeks will be on Brian De Palma's Blowout. That movie is available to rent online too, so get caught up before you listen. The series is produced by Chow Tu. Slate Plus's editorial director is Gabriel Roth, and I'm Sam Adams. See you next time.